Good morning. Our scripture reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapters 22 and 23. When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent them back to Pilate. The word of the Lord. The power, the trial, the cross, the kingdom. Those four things are going to guide us today. The power, the trial, the cross, and the kingdom. So Palm Sunday is what we're celebrating, and if you go back to the original Palm Sunday, we're not going to spend a lot of time on it. What happens is Jesus rides into Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives riding on a donkey, right? And all the people come out shouting and praising him, saying, Hosanna, save us, son of David, son of King David. What Jesus is doing is a very deliberate act. He is reenacting Solomon's coronation ceremony. Go back and read it in the Old Testament. When Solomon was coronated as king, or brought in as king, they had him ride into Jerusalem on a donkey with the shouts of all the people. Jesus does the same thing on purpose, declaring himself to be the new king. And then he goes straight up to the centerpiece of the entire country, the temple. This is the place where God dwelled and why Israel knew that God was with them. And Jesus goes and overturns money changers, symbolically declaring judgment on the very center of religious life for the people of Israel. There is a new kingdom that Jesus is bringing, and he is the new king. So it's no wonder that by the end of the week, we get from Palm Sunday to what's called the passion of the Christ. He's in Gethsemane praying, Take this cup from me. I don't want to experience this wrath. 
He's betrayed by his best friends, abandoned by all of them. He's arrested and deals with trials before religious leaders and political leaders, and ultimately he ends the week on a cross, not much like a king establishing a kingdom. Our aims this morning are to look at what Jesus does and what happens to him in the midst of this trial and what's happening afterwards in the cross in order to understand the type of kingdom that Jesus came to bring. To understand what God offers us through Jesus and what he calls us to because of Jesus. So we'll start with the power. I'm going to suggest that every one of us wants power. We all want power on some level. You can see this in any family, okay? So an example might be, why might someone, not any of you, but someone else, let's say, why might someone be a controlling spouse or a passive spouse? Why might some parents be authoritarian and some be permissive? And why might one child be rebellious and the other dutiful and obedient? I'd suggest the answer on a pretty basic level is we all want power and influence. We want to get our way. I want what's best for me. And so think about that. One spouse is controlling because they know the right way things should go. And one spouse is passive because keeping the peace is ultimately what they're after. And both exert their own way in order to get their way. Why might one parent be, or some parents be authoritarian? Because they want to create the right child. And why might some be permissive? Because they really want their kids to love them. They want to be best friends with their kids. Ultimately, they're trying to get something. It's the same reason why some children are rebellious and some are dutiful. The way to get what I want is to do the opposite of whatever my parents say. I can never get what I want around them. The way to get what I want is to do exactly what my parents say and then they won't bother me. (laughs) I can do whatever I want. This plays itself out in our work and school and in our just general relationships too, not just in our family. Think about it. Why are any of you ever worried about whether you're getting recognized or not at work or at school? Why do some of us get very anxious about getting what's coming to us, getting our fair share? Why are we always worried about whether our rights are being kind of pressed on by somebody else? Why are we constantly blaming others? Why are some of us easily offended? Why are we so afraid of being embarrassed? Or some of us have this aching suspicion we're being overlooked or forgotten by our friends. Why do some of us have a great job, do a great job of keeping a tally, keeping a record of wrongs done against us, things she said, the way that he treated me, the way that I have not been dealt my fair share. We are afraid that if we don't grab hold of it ourselves, others aren't going to realize who we are. If we don't get ours, we've got to protect ourselves. 
we're afraid of losing power, ultimately. And the main question beneath all of it is, what type of kingdom are we envisioning? We all envision a kingdom. What type of kingdom are we envisioning? So, I don't think it's just personally. We all want power politically and corporately as well. And this is pretty obvious. We see this in in North America. We see this in D.C., right? Political division in the U.S. is driven by fear and a desire for power. It's kind of obvious, right? Okay? And on both sides of the political aisle are competing visions of the kingdom. And it's the worry that when this administration comes in, or when that one, if it comes in, then everything that matters is going to be undone. Some of you feel that way right now. Some of you felt that way four years ago. Everything that matters is being undone. Fear and hopelessness drive people to be ruthless and vicious, which is our current political climate. The goal is us being in and them out. Doesn't matter who the us and them is, right? If we're in control, then things will be okay. And I'll be okay. Fear and power. And just as an aside, if you today are the sort of person who is afraid, who has fear about our current culture or the current administration or the direction of the country, it, ask this question first. How much of my fear might, might be because I fear losing my comfortable position? How much might your race or socioeconomic status have to do with your fears? How much is because your kingdom is being threatened The thing is, with God's kingdom, it's never threatened. It doesn't matter what direction the culture is going, God's kingdom will endure. Yours may crumble. Every nation's may crumble. God's kingdom will not. It's always a question, or always about the vision of the kingdom. And when I say your vision of the kingdom, it means how do you define the good life? Or what matters most in this world? And when it boils down to it, our vision of the kingdom always amounts to who is in power and who is king. The power question comes into play in Jesus' trial. The trial is second. Now, We love courtroom dramas, whether that's a book, a novel, a play, a a movie, right? So whether it's Atticus Finch kind of arguing the case in To Kill a Mockingbird or, uh, you know, Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men, we love to see justice being brought. We love to see the rule of law being brought on perpetrators, on evil people. Or we love the good guy just to win, right? Like we love in A Miracle on 34th Street when the United States Postal Service comes in with all of those letters mailed to Santa and the lawyer says, see, even the United States Postal Service declares Kris Kringle is Santa Claus and everyone gets all warm and fuzzy inside because good has happened. Justice or something like it has been served. 
Because the rule of law matters and we have an inherent sense of justice, we have a visceral response to Jesus' trial and execution because in it we see no justice. Now, Jesus was tried by the religious and political authorities of the day. In fact, all the powers, all the powers that were in place in Israel in that day were the ones who were trying him. And it should have been a good trial in many ways because Jewish law, if you go and read through the Old Testament, was one of the fairest legal systems ever created. It provided equity and protection for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner, the sort of things other countries didn't do. It offered a lot of restraint in the way that you executed justice. It required an eyewitness testimony in order to have capital punishment. Think about that. Capital punishment required the actual eyewitness of more than one person. It wasn't just, oh, he might possibly have done it. On top of that, he was being tried by Roman law because of Pilate. Roman law was regarded for its justice, its equity, and the peace and prosperity that its rule of law created all over the Roman Empire. But when Jesus is brought to trial, all of that Jewish law and Roman law was thrown out the window. It becomes a sham trial and a gross injustice. The worst is the first group of people that he interacts with, which in Luke's account is the council. Other accounts call it the Sanhedrin. This was the religious leaders of Jerusalem and of Israel in that day. It was made up of priests and scribes, basically rabbis and priests, the highest people in the entire society. This was your, uh, your congress, your judge, your judicial system. This was the the authorities that decided what was right and good and true for the entire nation. These guys are in the seat of power in a very religious culture like ancient Israel. Now, the problem with Jesus is he was always challenging people in places of power. In his early days, he was going throughout Galilee, and in every village he went, he challenged people who were the richest, the most in, the most powerful. The rabbis, the leaders of the community, were challenged by his miracles and his declaration of the kingdom of God and by his interaction with the outcast and the poor and the sinful. But up until now, he hasn't really challenged the Jerusalem leadership until he rides into Jerusalem on that donkey, overturns their tables, And they realize pretty quickly he is judging the whole system and he's judging all of them. Who does he think he is? Because of the crowds and the people and the the support, the council, the religious council, realizes their kingdom is being threatened by this would-be king. So they bring false charges against him. They bring eyewitnesses who make claims. And ultimately, they have to go to his claims. You said, you said, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Are you? They hand him over to Pilate, the Roman governor, because they can't actually execute people under Roman rule. Only the Romans can. And they say, Pilate, who's the governor in Caesar's place, this guy They don't worry about the religious stuff. They're not saying he claims to be God's son. Instead, they go straight to the Caesar thing. He claims to be a king in place of Caesar. 
He's going to set up a kingdom in place of Roman rule. We love Roman rule. We love the Caesar thing. This Jesus guy doesn't. You should get rid of him. Pilate wants nothing to do with this man, Jesus. But he acts to appease. He acts to appease the religious leaders and the crowds because he's trying to maintain his kingdom. And then Jesus gets passed on to the third. It's almost a byproduct. It's not really a main focus of a trial. He gets passed on to Herod. Now, Herod was a puppet Jewish king. His father, Herod the Great, was the one who had all the babies in Bethlehem executed after the wise men came through and he'd heard about the king. So this is now the Herod's son, who's crazy himself on many levels. He's really excited to see Jesus. Jesus does all these amazing things, water to wine. I could use that in my little kingdom. And he's hoping Jesus will do some of his miracle stuff, some of that magic stuff. You know, Jesus, entertain me for a while. This will be fun. But when Jesus comes, Jesus is silent. He doesn't give Herod what he wants. And so Herod does not see Jesus for who he is. Think about that for a minute. Herod really isn't putting Jesus on trial. He desired to see Jesus. He wanted to see Jesus for some time. But when he actually meets Jesus, he can't see who Jesus is. Why? Because he has his own agenda and his own assumptions about who is king. And I think that's a challenge for any of us. If you have been looking for Jesus, if you've desired to see Jesus, if you want to meet Jesus, you may have actually met him and completely not seen him because you come at him with your own agenda. That's that idea of coming to church, for instance, in order to, you know, I got to get some, I got to get grounded again. I need to be a better person. A little Jesus will help me. Jesus, help me to be a better person. Or, you know, I go to church regularly and I read the Bible and I pray, therefore God owes me a good life. I've measured up, I've done the Jesus thing. God owes it to me to keep my marriage together, to make my kids successful, to keep my bank account full. When we approach Jesus on our agenda to get what we want from him, we will miss him every time. The trial is a question of who has authority, who has power. The religious council, Pilate the governor, Herod the Jewish king, or Jesus. The council asks him the most clear question, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Jesus' response in Luke twenty-two sixty-nine 69 is, I am. From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of God. Mark's account of the same interaction adds the phrase, and coming with the clouds of heaven. That's Jesus' response to, are you the Christ, the Son of God? 
And here's what he's doing. He's quoting from their Bible, from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 110, the seated at the right hand of God. And that whole seated at the right hand of God, if you go read Psalm 110, is about the Son of Man, God's Messiah, God's chosen one, sitting on the throne of judgment, vanquishing all of his enemies. This is the place of God's right hand, the place of judgment, the place of victory. That's when you're going to see me next. And coming on the clouds of heaven. This is straight from Daniel 7, where the vision was the day when the Lord would come, his chosen one would come, riding on the clouds of heaven. Clouds of heaven is a, is a biblical metaphor, a Hebraism, for the presence and power and glory of God. So Jesus is saying, you guys want to know who I am? I am the judge of the earth. I am the very presence of the Almighty. To Pilate, when Pontius Pilate says, hey, you know I can set you free or execute you, Jesus in John 19, 11 says, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Pilate gets very nervous now because he knows the tables have been turned. (laughs) Who's on trial? Jesus or Pilate? Who truly has authority to enact final judgment? And yet, Jesus allows the world's powers to judge him. Why? Because as he also says to Pilate in John 18, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would be fighting for me. But my kingdom is not of this world. If I was building the kind of kingdom you have, Pilate, or the kind that the religious leaders are talking about, we would be starting a war because that's how you establish a kingdom. You've got to fight. You've got to get yours. You've got to establish your ground. My servants would be fighting you, overturning all of this. We'd take over Jerusalem, but my kingdom is not of this world. Yes, Jesus is the judge of the universe, and he is on trial because his kingdom is formed by a cross. His kingdom is not formed by avoiding crosses or forcing crosses on others. His kingdom is born in bearing crosses for others. So everyone brings their judgment on Jesus because his kingdom is about a cross, and so they send him there. The religious leaders see him as a threat to their power. Pilate wants to appease and keep his position and his power And so collectively, they sentence him to death by crucifixion. And the most surprising thing about it all is that Jesus doesn't at that moment thrash them all. I mean, seriously, he is the God of the universe, and he doesn't just say, okay, we're done here. You're gone. You're gone. You're gone. He doesn't annihilate them. He doesn't kill them. He doesn't take their breath away. He doesn't Darth Vader them from afar. Philippians 2, which we often use as a confession of faith, talks about God, Jesus being God incarnate, but giving up his power for our good. It says Jesus being in very nature, and I'm paraphrasing, being in very nature God, 
did not consider his equality with God something to be exploited for his own good. He did not take advantage of his divinity for his own good. In that moment, he could have ended them. But he doesn't exploit his power for his own good. Instead, he humbles himself, becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus does not utilize his power for his own good. He surrenders it for our good on the cross. The cross is our third. All four Gospels focus on the death of Christ. From one-fourth to one-half of all that's written in each of the Gospels is focused on the passion narrative, kind of focused on the death of Christ. As Eugene Peterson said, the rest is introduction. But the, the part it's trying to get to is the death. But what's interesting is there's not a lot of detail of the actual crucifixion. They use the word scourged, crucified. That's it. Scourged him, crucified him. No gory details. Instead, what you get is a lot that surrounds all of Jesus' death. You get a Last Supper where he is lifting up the bread and the wine and reinterpreting the Passover in light of him. You get Jesus on his knees, on his face, sweating and praying, take this cup from me in the Garden of Gethsemane. You get his friends betraying him, his best friends betraying him, everyone close to him abandoning him. You get an arrest and false trials. You get Jesus silent before the governors. You get him willingly going to the cross And you get his words on the cross. Luke does not focus on the physical horrors of crucifixion, but he wants us to focus on the deep meaning of the cross. And the cross is why Jesus came. To make a way to the true and divine life. Our sin given to him. Our judgment on him his life given for ours. And then Jesus calls us to the same. In Luke 9, 23, he said, hey, if you guys want to be my disciples, you want to kind of be part of what I'm doing, great. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, die to self for the good of others. You want to be a Christian? That's it. Deny yourself. Die to yourself for the good of others. Take up your cross. Paul, who later became an apostle, cited that phrasing, or rephrased that for his own wording, time and again. In Galatians 2.20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life he lives is cross-centered. In 1 Corinthians 2.2, he said, I didn't come to you in power and eloquence. I've decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You may think I'm an idiot or a fool. I know Christ and him crucified, and that's enough. This is what ascetics and theologians call the cruciform life. What does it look like to live the cruciform life? It means living under 
the cross, at the foot of the cross, focused on the cross, with the cross being your lens through which you view the world and you see yourself. Constant awareness of the cross and so being shaped into the image of Christ. The cruciform life involves dying to self and living for God's kingdom and for others' good. That's it. Easy. The cross, and lastly, the kingdom. History, if you go read history, if you're one of those history people, history is dominated by the powerful. You can see that. It's dominated by the powerful. And so many Christians either retreat, avoiding the world and the culture, protecting themselves from being contaminated, afraid of what the powerful are going to do or offer, or Christians fight. We know we need to gain power ourselves. We've got to keep our place. We've got to have influence or we'll be crushed. Retreat or fight. But God's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. And God is working out his kingdom throughout history on wholly other terms. Now think about this. Jesus' kingdom is actually profoundly political. We don't always think about it that way, but it's profoundly political in that it challenges every kingdom and culture. Everywhere where Jesus was going, he was challenging the status quo, and he was challenging the political order of every culture. He said the in are out. The lost are saved. To live, you must die. This is an upside-down sort of kingdom. Not the good are in and the bad are out, but the humble are in and the proud are out. And what does Jesus do? He goes around ministering to, caring for, loving the poor, the outcast, and the sinful. Now, we think positively about some of that, but, but just take that word outcast. Every culture has versions of an outcast. We may not outcast the same people they did, but there are people that you look at and say, they're what's wrong with society. If we got rid of them. And Jesus is constantly turning that back. And Jesus is always pushing on those at the top. The powerful are the ones most challenged by him. Those who have positions of status and authority. And he's constantly talking about money. Your money is not your money. Give away your money. Who or what is on the throne of your heart? Money or something else? It is a political message (laughs) with political implications. At the very beginning of his ministry, he's in Nazareth, his hometown, and he reads from Isaiah 61, which basically says the good news is being preached to the poor, so the poor, liberty to the prisoner, and the year of the Lord's favor, which is the year of Jubilee, which is the year of canceling all debts. He's setting prisoners free, he's canceling all debts, and he's bringing good news to the poor. The gospel has political implications in that it calls us, it calls us 
to live our lives in ways that influence the world's order, but, but not in the same kind of kingdom ways. Eugene Peterson wrote, Jesus and his followers know that the conditions in which the gospel makes its way in the world have little to do with influence and wealth and power. The non-negotiable context from which they work is made up of Jesus, the cross, and the Trinity. So the kingdom that we're called to live out is not in the power games that we play in our marriages, in our families, at work, or in the political sphere. Rather, it's in a cross-shaped engagement of your neighbor, of your culture, of the world around us. And the cross ultimately calls us to deep humility, not fear, not protecting my own, incredible compassion, not being defensive, not blaming, compassion. The cross calls us to radical generosity. Nothing is mine, I give it all for your good. And ultimately, it calls us to grace. It is by grace we offer grace. It's the only hope we have. Ancient Egypt, ancient Babylon, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, today's superpowers. Those were or are powerful kingdoms. The history of this world looks like it is wrought by force and power and kings. But God's upside down kingdom is formed on a cross. And I have a suspicion God's kingdom will outdo and undo and outlast all of the others. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, in a sham trial, you faced injustice, and on a cross you died to give us the way to life and to show us that the way to life is not through power, but surrender. Establish your kingdom in our hearts, and may we be your kingdom emissaries in this world with hope and joy and peace no matter what is happening. In Christ's name, amen. Then they seized Jesus and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, 
for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, Prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull... There they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others? Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. 
One of the criminals who were hanged reeled at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. <laughs> 